Cooperation is the foundation of any prosperous society. And to make that happen, you need lots of fairness in, in social relations. I think it's a fair question to ask, well, why are we talking about psychology on an economics podcast? And the answer to that is, is that the economy is people. So you're saying, Nick, that if you get all the grapes and the rest of us just get those nasty cucumbers, we're not all going to cooperate with you no. as uh, no. well as if you shared some of those grapes. Correct. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. This is the first time we've had a chance to chat since the midterm elections, Nick. Uh, yep. Wasn't nearly as bad as we expected, was it? No, uh, definitely got to admit that I'm pretty elated. And, you know, I mean, by rights, this should have been a wipeout, and it wasn't. Right. And I think there's a bunch of reasons that it wasn't a wipeout. And the principal one being, well, let's let's be honest. The Republican Party has devolved into a bunch of nut jobs, uh, and reasonable people are not that into it. Uh, it's actually shocking that they got as many votes as they did. But the other reason for the Democratic success in this cycle is the unambiguous reality of substantial accomplishments in the first in the first couple of years. And uh, you know, we said it on the podcast before. What the Biden administration has accomplished economically is breathtaking. It's just no one has come close in decades. And and let's be clear, apart from the checks that went out yeah, and the child tax credits, when we say their accomplishments, it hasn't had a material effect on the ground in most people's lives yet. And people understand that, yeah. right? And we're in the midst of this high inflation and high high gas and uh, heating costs and and so forth. So people are feeling some pain right now from the global economy. But what the Biden administration and the Democrats broadly have done is that they've demonstrated their determination to make the lives of the American people a little bit better. Yeah. And this gets to the heart of this podcast a little more fair. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. The Biden administration dedication to middle out economics, the notion that a thriving middle class is the source and cause of economic progress and growth rather than the consequence of it is at the center of why they're that they've been so successful and have passed so many really incredible uh, economic policies from the American Rescue Plan to the IRA to the Infrastructure Plan, the CHIPS Act. All of this stuff is aimed at making the economy grow from the middle out and the bottom up. And th this is a, a radical departure in economic policy. Uh, and, and, you know, as such, Biden really is the first post-Reagan president 
because right. none of the Democrats that came before him governed in this way or attempted to pass these kind of policies. So anyway, uh, you know, it's a really, really cool thing. And indeed, the central, you know, one of the central focuses is to make the economy fairer, to allow more and more people to participate robustly, which brings us to the subject of this week's pod. Right. The the psychology of uh, of broken contracts of yeah, or a, of, of, of fair in social particular, contracts. Yes, a fair social contract, which we have been violating for the past 40, 50 years. And uh, finally, we have an administration that's not just dedicated to fixing it, because I think other administrations wanted to address this issue. Uh, they didn't know how, but also they didn't know how to talk about it yeah. in the way that the Biden administration has and has done so successfully, clearly, over the past two years. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, today I'm super excited to talk to my colleague, Eric Beinacher, who's a professor of public policy at the Bolotnik School of Government and the executive director of the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the University of Oxford. and. Um, you know, Eric has done some really interesting research on fair social contracts and the psychology and sociology of fair social contracts. And I think it's a fair question to ask, well, why are we talking about psychology on an economics podcast? And the answer to that is, is that, you know, the economy is people, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not capital. Yeah, no, the economy is people. And if you don't understand oh. people, uh, then you don't understand economics. And the discussion about fair social contracts is really central to economics, and, and I'm very excited to have him on the pod. Eric Beinhocker, Executive Director for the Institute for New Economic Thinking at the Oxford Martin School and Professor at the Blotnick School of Government. So, Eric, it's lovely to have you back on the pod, and uh, I'm very excited to talk about fair social contracts, but, you know, listeners paying attention will be wondering why an issue that sounds sociological or psychological, the idea of fair social contracts, you know, why, why on an economics podcast is that something we need to talk about? And why did it attract you as a thing, uh, as a subject for research? Uh, I actually believe the idea of fairness is quite central to uh, economic issues and to political issues. Um, as you've often said on the podcast, uh, the economy is made out of people, and people are very conscious of and very sensitive uh, to ideas of fairness. And whether a, a system or a set of arrangements in the economics or politics is fair or unfair can dramatically uh, influence uh, how they behave. And so what Tell us a little bit about your research on fair social contracts. Like, what wh what should people know about that? What is a what is a social contract? What's a fair social contract? Yeah, what is a social contract and what is fair? <laughs> well, uh, those are those are two big questions. Well, first, the the idea of social contracts is actually an old one. It goes back to uh, Jean Jacques uh, Rousseau back a couple hundred years ago, who uh, came up with this idea that. You know, just as individuals can have a relationship with each other, you know, we can be friends or neighbors or partners and have ideas of fairness or unfairness in, in those relationships. 
that we also have relationships with bigger collectives in society, uh, like governments or our employer or other institutions we're part of. And so we can uh, also have moral judgments about those relationships as to whether they're just or unjust or, or, or fair or unfair. So the social contract refers to uh, the relationship between an individual uh, and, uh, and some collective. Now, uh, what's fair or unfair is, is a pretty big question that's been keeping uh, philosophers and psychologists and others busy for you know, uh, at least a few thousand years. And the way uh, I approach it in this research is a bit different than the way uh, philosophers approach it. So the, a philosophical approach might ask at a fundamental level, what's fair or unfair and how can we uh, justify you know, that uh, position? Uh, sort of you know, looking top down at the, the arrangements in society. Um, what I've been interested in this research is what do people actually think is unfair or fair? So that's an empirical psychological question. And there's rather been, than uh, a philosophical question, rather which is than quite a philosophical interesting. question. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and so um, there's a body of research where mostly experimental psychologists, but also anthropologists and, and other social scientists find ways to both ask people, do experiments on them, observe their real behaviors and groups and so on to figure out what do real people actually believe is fair or unfair. Now, um, the philosophers might take a different view of that because people, as we know, aren't always consistent in their views. So there might be lots of contradictions in, in, in those views, um, and it may not be logical. And also, you know, there's inevitably going to be differences across individual people and, and cultures as to what's viewed as fair or unfair. But one of the big findings from this stream of, of research is that actually there is a lot of commonality across uh, uh, people and across different cultures as to that we have some pretty basic instincts uh, around this idea of fairness. So, so you're saying there is an actual science of fairness. Well, I, I wouldn't say that there's a science of fairness, um, but there is an empirical psychological literature on cooperation and our moral preferences and moral behaviors. Um, and, and out of that, we can see some uh, common patterns and, and tendencies for uh, how people react in different situations and 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 what people view is is uh, fair uh, unfair. Yeah. Now I should I should caveat I should caveat all this by saying that you know the, the usual social scientist caveat more work needs to be done. Uh, we don't have a complete picture of this, but you know there's been a lot of interesting work showing that these instincts start very early in in early childhood. There's experiments with infants and you know young toddlers showing these kinds of behaviors. And even evidence that uh, some of these behaviors exist in primates. Um, you know, some listeners might have seen there's a famous YouTube video of two, I think they were uh, apes, you know, one getting a, a, a nice tasty snack, a grape, and another one getting a, you know, less tasty snack. And, and the, the other one, and the one who didn't get the tasty snack feeling very violated and unfair and expressing uh, his views. So, you know, we, uh, so there's evidence that there are some very, you know, strong deep uh, instincts for these kinds of behaviors uh, in humans and, and maybe other primates too. Yeah. And just to, just to back up just a tiny bit and remind our listeners how to connect these dots a little bit. If you don't take the orthodox view that the economy is money, if you understand it in the, in a more modern way and certainly understand prosperity as 
not GDP, but as solutions to human problems and recognize that in order to solve complex problems, societies require immense amounts of complex cooperation, then it becomes ever more clear why a fair social contract is so important because in the absence of it, cooperation breaks down. So does problem solving and hence uh, not just prosperity, but also governance and democracy and social cohesion and all those things break down. This is why these things are so important for economic outcomes is that a highly cooperative society is one that's going to solve really complicated problems and be really prosperous. So I, I just wanted to center the importance of a fair social contract and all of that in a, in a 21st century theory of prosperity and economic progress. So, so you're saying, Nick, that if you get all the grapes and the rest of us just get those nasty cucumbers, yeah, um, it, it, you know, we're not all going to cooperate with you no. as uh, no. well as if you shared some of those grapes. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> exactly. No, as as you know, as well, the three of us have discussed before. Uh, you know, cooperation is the foundation of any any prosperous uh, society. Um, you know, if you go around the world and look at prosperous societies, they all have very high trust, high cooperation. And to make that happen, you need lots of fairness in, in social relations, and particularly these institutional relations or, or social contracts. And in contrast, you know, in places, you know, where there's low fairness, uh, low trust, uh, cooperation breaks down and life isn't, uh, isn't that great. Yeah. So, uh, so this is this idea of fair social contracts actually is is quite foundational uh, to mm -hmm. any uh, any prosperous economy. And just a very brief historical note, I, I, I would note that you know part of the Enlightenment revolution, um, you know, was ideas of you know human rights and and uh, broader ideas of fairness in society that that changed the nature of our political and economic social contracts. One could argue that that was a pretty big step in creating the great enrichment, the, you know, huge increase in, in living standards that uh, happened, you know, uh, kind of from the 18th century onwards in, in Western countries. Right. So what, 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 did, what stood out from your research? What did you learn? Well, yeah. Yeah. So first is, is that uh, across, you know, quite a variety of cultures and individuals and, and, and age groups, Again, you know, some real consistency on what I'd call the dimensions of, of fairness. They break down roughly into three categories. One is relational fairness. So, you know, are my uh, relations, you know, with other people or with institutions in a social contract, are they fair? What could be called procedural fairness? Um, are the rules of the game fair? Um, and are they applied to everybody and, and, uh, and, and followed? And then third is distributional fairness that, you know, how resources and rewards and responsibilities and status and other things in the system, um, are they distributed in a, in a way that people view uh, as fair? And then underneath these three broad categories, there were a, a set of kind of very specific things that seemed to trigger people's fairness instincts. So, uh, for example, and in a way, I like to explain this is is often think you're a, you know a child on the playground at, at a game, and you know you see some kids playing a game and you want to take part. Um, how do you judge whether it's a fair game? 
Well, things like inclusion. First, am I invited to play in the game? If I'm excluded from the game, I'm not going to think it's very fair. Uh, you know, do I have some choice, agency, can you know, to play the game? And can I make choices within the game? If I'm just put in the game and told what to do, you know, I'm probably not going to like that either. And then things like, you know, are the rules of the game clear? Is everybody following them? Again, if, you know, some kids get to violate the rules or play by different rules, I'm likely to view that as, as, as unfair. Um, is it meritocratic? If I play the game well, do I get, you know, rewards and success? And people who don't play the game well have, have less success. And then things like uh, capabilities. Is it a game I'm actually equipped and able to play? If I'm forced to play a game I don't have the capabilities for, I'm also uh, not likely to view that as, as fair. And then uh, notions of reciprocity. You know, if I contribute to the game to the best of my abilities, if I'm a good player in the game, do I get something back? Is, is there a two-way street, a quid pro quo in the game? Um, so those were examples of some of the kinds of very consistent behaviors and, and instincts that come out of the research. What does that imply about economic policy, and what what doesn't it imply? One of, uh, again, a little bit of of backstory. Um, one of the motivations for me in this research was understanding the rise of of political populism in the U.S. It was very clear from uh, mid twenty tens onward that there was a lot of anger and a lot of feelings of of unfairness and violation in the U.S. population, and not just on the political right in the in the you know Trump uh, crowd, but also in the Occupy Wall Street and and on the on the left uh, as as well. And so I was interested in the connections between that and 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 economic issues, and there have been a lot of research showing you know that things like just economic inequality or unemployment or even wages didn't really sort of explain these these voting patterns. So I had a thesis that it was less about those kind of what could be called hard economic outcomes and more about the psychology around the economy that these notions of, of fairness had been violated. And, and people, you know, were lit quite literally feeling screwed, feeling violated, that the system was broken, that their contract with the American system had been broken. And again, part of my you know, prompt for this was uh, during the 2016 election, I had both family and friends really on either sides of these debates. I had, you know, Trump voting family and Bernie voting family and, you know, uh, Trump supporting friends and Bernie supporting friends. And I was really struck by even though their candidates and their issues and things were just wildly different, this psychological structure of kind of feeling like the American people have been screwed, have been violated, that the contract has been broken, was very, uh, you know, very consistent. Um, and as I dug into it more and these, these dimensions of fairness that I talked about, you can start mapping them onto economic policy and showing how, you know, people are right. They were pretty screwed. Yeah. Um, and uh, you guys in this podcast have, have been detailing that screwedness over over many episodes. Yeah, and you know, so whether it's things like you know, laws, just take one one example: loss of agency or loss of autonomy. You know, if you have uh, a loss of worker power, deunionization, your employer is controlling your schedule and sending it to you by text message the night before. All kinds of things where you feel less in control of your life. You know, you're going to feel pretty screwed, and we see hard evidence that those kinds of things were were happening. And in fact, uh, this you know slogan "Take Back Control" was the guiding slogan of the Brexit uh, populist movement, playing to that feeling of loss of agency. I just can't get this out of my my head. You, <laughs> Eric, you 
you use the metaphor of the playground to uh, describe our the principles of fairness? And all I can think now is how much our politics is like a playground, just, you know, toddlers throwing fits at how unfairly they've been treated. And I don't mean to diminish what has happened to real people, but oh my God, it's like, it, it, it is it is such a great metaphor for describing what's happened to our democracy. Well, it's, it, you know, the, uh, the developmental psychologists would say there's more than metaphor here that again, <laughs> uh, the, the, these, you know, these instincts uh, and behaviors do develop uh, kind of during our, during our childhood and then stay, stay with us. And so, you know, the kind of, you know, if you think back emotionally to, you know, you're a kid on the playground and other kids are playing an unfair game and, you know, you're not treated well and, and all the, the other things. So how do you feel emotionally? I mean, you feel really upset. But these these feelings of, of fairness violation do trigger very strong emotions. And and yeah. you know, there's some there's some which neuropsychology, is the yeah. which is the point. There's some neuropsychology research showing, you know, which parts of our brain like up and all, all the unhappy chemicals start squirting around in, in, in our in our brains. And it literally makes us crazy yeah. um, that it uh, shuts down our kind of more you know rational centers of thought. And we have these uh, strong uh, feelings both to punish and strike back and also to bond with the other people who feel screwed. And this is where the identity part of the politics comes in, because then you start looking for people like me to, you know, uh, bond with and fight back. Again, you know, on the playground, you'd find the, you know, if you're some of the nerdy kids who got excluded from the game, you try and find the other nerdy kids to go, you know, correct things. Yeah, this 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 sort of perfectly um, describes the whole election denial um, phenomenon, right? Is, you know, people feeling screwed and their brains effectively in many ways shutting down and just sort of playing this game of, Let's pretend and us against them. And there you have it. One of the big findings of this of this line of uh, uh, research is that when people feel fairness and the contract is violated, they're willing to punish the violators to their own self-harm. Now, you know, to an economist, this sounds irrational, crazy. I mean, uh -huh. you know, why would <laughs> why would I why would I, you know, make a punishment that is more costly to me than any benefit I could get uh, from it. But uh, the uh, game theorists and evolutionary evolutionary theorists have an answer to that, that when you're in part of a group, um, that um, by being willing to punish even to crazy levels, you enforce that you help enforce those cooperative norms. Right. Um, so both you're, you're kind of taking one for the team in, in sacrificing yourself to enforce the broader group cooperation but you're also sending a signal to those who would violate the social contract that, hey, you should be careful about what you do because I'm so crazy. You know, if you want to see crazy, this is crazy, you know, that I might come back at you in some way that's you know very costly to you. So uh, what they've shown both in experiments and game theory is that societies that have this altruistic punishment actually can sustain higher levels of cooperation, more stable cooperation. You kind of need need a little bit of craziness to sort of keep the system stable. But obviously, if things really break down and everybody's getting crazy, like we have in our current politics today, then you can have a big kind of catastrophic unraveling uh, of, of cooperation. There's experimental data that shows that this that this instinct exists across cultures. 
Yes, with is that the ultimatum and, game? I I, I get them yes, confused. yes, yeah. yes. Uh, so uh, listeners uh, may want to Google this this literature called the ultimatum game, which is which is very interesting, which illustrates exactly this idea that I'll I'll actually punish someone who's violated cooperation to my own detriment to again enforce uh, norms of cooperation. Uh, but uh, studies across cultures show that while that behavior is consistent across cultures. There are, of course, lots of, uh, as you'd expect, lots of uh, variations mm -hmm. on the intensity of it, how it's perceived, and 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 so on. Right. Uh, but again, coming back to our our politics, this helps explain why, you know, for example, there were many uh, Trump voters who kind of were told or knew that Trump's policies could be bad for them. You know, whether it's people who might get their health care taken away. Or um, you know, uh, folks who who would suffer you know from Trump's trade wars, or in the case of Brexit, people who would lose out from the lost trade with Europe, that they still went ahead and supported this candidate and these policies uh, because uh, again they were you know so keen to shake up the system to express their anger that they were kind of willing to take one you know uh, for the what they saw as taking one for the team to try and change things. It's interesting because, you know, that expression, the rising tide lifts all boats. Well, if that makes sense to you, then so does the flip side. A uh, uh, lowering tide sinks all boats. Yeah, it's true. That's true. So what? But one thing I want to I do, I think it's really important to emphasize in this in this discussion about fairness and fair social contracts is it's quite clear that, first of all, that different people in different cultures make variable calculations about what's fair and reasonable, right? Because people yeah. tend to look at these things differently. But it's also true that virtually no one believes that uh, a fair social contract means we all get the same thing. Yeah. I think it's very important to emphasize that. The, the, the sort of communist or you know completely egalitarian ideal that we're all the same and all economic outcomes are the same violates uh, the social contract in the same way as uh, one person gets everything and everybody else gets nothing. Exactly. And, and Nick, you know, you're pointing to something that, that progressives often kind of get tangled up about. Right. And, and actually pay a real political price for their kind of confusion right. over this issue, because fairness and equality are not the same. That's right. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a sort of short example to illustrate Imagine we're having a you know 100 meter dash race uh, with Usain Bolt. A fair outcome is you know against the you know the, the, uh, us here on this podcast. A fair outcome is he beats us by a lot because he's the yeah. fastest guy in the, <laughs> in the world. So an unequal outcome yeah. in that sense is is fair. And on the other hand, if we all finished at the same time, people would look at it and say something's rigged. You know something's yeah. wrong with that race. Somebody's violating the rules. That's an unfair uh, outcome. So what people want to be equal uh, is this what what is often called kind of a moral equality that we you know all uh, are born with the same rights and uh, you know have to play by the same rules and we all deserve dignity uh, and we all deserve these things of agency and you know opportunity and reciprocity and 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 so on. So everyone is treated equally in a kind of moral and and rules of the game sense. But whether an equal or unequal outcome is fair or unfair depends on the game you're playing. In some games, 
you would expect an equal outcome and in other games you wouldn't. Now, in the economic game, we don't necessarily expect an equal outcome because uh, we know there's lots of, lots of factors uh, at, at play, but we do want to know that again, the rules of the game and how it's played and how we're treated in it is fair. Yeah, absolutely. And so, but the big trap on the left is believing that because high levels of inequality is bad for a variety of reasons, that zero inequality is good. The latter is not true. <laughs> right. I, th I think, I, I think, I think, you know, most, most on the left, you know, aren't sort of that totalitarian and yeah, egalitarian right. views. But you do see why Joe the plumber became such a phenomenon, you know, so uh, listeners might remember this famous during uh, the Obama campaign, a, you know, blue collar plumber from, uh, I think it was Ohio, you know, uh, challenged Obama, you know, all paraphrasing, you know, you're going to take money from me and spread it around to, uh, to other people. And um, what he was saying was it would be unfair, you know, for the government to you know, take money, you know, that he felt he'd earned and spread it around to other people. Now we, we should call out, there's often kind of like racial dog whistle and, and other, you know, uh, issues lurking under these kinds of things, uh, you know, but what he was appealing to was notions of meritocracy and, and kind of rule-based that uh, in the economic game, it should be meritocratic and, and rule-based and, you know, accusing, you know, progressives of like Obama of, of, of violating that. And the Republicans have, you know, made real political hay out of those kinds of, of feelings with their followers. And, you know, by understanding this difference between fairness and equality, I think progressives have a chance to counter that in more effective ways. Can I ask you something, Eric? In in the economic game, uh, is fairness a moving target? Like our, our perception of what was fair 200 years ago is different from what we perceive to be fair today? Oh, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, well, you know, if we just take one dimension of, of fairness, inclusion, then in prior uh, generations and centuries, excluding lots of people was considered perfectly normal and fair. And, and of course, we uh, we don't accept that today. So, um, you know, hopefully there's some moral progress in, in our uh, in our notions of fairness, but also just, you know, how these things are interpreted is is always a, a you know function of a specific time and, and and culture and so on okay getting back to the theme of this podcast <laughs> we, we want we want to uh, change the way people uh think and talk about economics towards the end of making the economy better for everybody so what does a does our understanding of fair social contracts say about uh how we should understand the economy Two points. First is just the realization that fairness, fair social contracts is essential to long term prosperity. Uh, you know, that would be big progress itself. You know, traditional economics is often pitted ideas of, of fairness against the economy, you know, that you can either choose, you can have a, a more sort of, you know, fair and just economy, or you can have a prosperous growing economy. And that's been our political frame uh, in, in many ways for a long time. This work shows that they aren't contradictions at all, that the more uh, fairness and justice we have, the more cooperation we have and the more prosperity we have. So that in itself would be a huge change in our thinking and narrative. But then just getting a bit more concrete, uh, I think this uh, 
framework actually helps us understand how to design policies that could rebuild uh, the social contract. Um, you know, the social contract after decades of neoliberalism has really been in tatters. You know, uh, we've seen this, you know, loss of agency and worker power, loss of dignity and status. Um, also, you know, rule violations that corporations can get away with uh, all kinds of behaviors if they, you know, just pay a small fine or that the rich have a completely different tax system than everybody else. We've seen losses of meritocracy, decreasing security loss of investment in, in capabilities and less reciprocity. So, you know, if you go down kind of the list of all the dimensions of fairness under neoliberalism, they all got worse. And no wonder yeah. people are pissed off and vote for candidates like Trump. So we have to go through the same list and say, how do we rebuild? Um, you know, what policies re-empower workers, give them that sense of agency and control over their lives? How do we increase inclusion? Um, how do we, you know, take something like the tax system and make sure everybody's playing by one set of, you know, uh, uh, fair rules. Um, how do we restore notions of, of meritocracy, give people security and invest in their capabilities? So what this framework does is it helps point you at policies that not only are the right thing to do economically, but are also likely to be politically very popular because they are appealing to these deep instincts for uh, fairness. And, and I think you know, as a political position, calling out and saying, we know you've been screwed, we feel your screwedness, and here's how we're going to fix it by, you know, rebuilding fairness in the social contract uh, would be uh, a very uh, powerful political strategy. So, so wait, what you're suggesting, Eric, is that we should create policies that assure that if you work hard and play by the rules, Everybody should be able to enjoy a comfortable, secure, and dignified life. I, I know it sounds <laughs> it sounds radical and crazy, Goldie, but uh, yes, that's that's what I'm I'm saying, and and uh, we can live in hope. All right. So one final question: We've asked you before. We'll ask you again. Why do you do this work? We've all been seeing how uh, this breakdown in, in feelings of, of fairness have uh, led to breakdowns in our democracy and our uh, politics and, and our economy. And it's, you know, it's essential that if we're going to uh, get America back to cooperating again and back to solving problems that we need to uh, understand this much better and find ways to fix it. Cool. Well, thanks for being with us. It was great to uh, have you on the pod as always and more to come. Thanks very much, guys. Yeah, so Goldie, that's such an interesting uh, subject. And it's so central to economics and how we should think about economic cause and effect. And frankly, how we should think about developing policy ideas. Uh, you know, again, I think I you know, said it during the discussion, but I think it's worth underscoring that how people feel about fairness and what a fair mm -hmm. social contract is, is not, there's no one answer to that question. Uh, people are different and things evolve. I think the question you asked about, do our notions of fairness evolve? I think that's a really interesting question that we should air out more at some later time. But, right. uh, but one thing's for sure is that how we feel about how the economy generates its outcomes is very central to whether the economy will generate its outcomes, uh, good outcomes. And uh, this discussion of fairness is is so interesting and important. Yeah, and I also think, Nick, it gets to the heart 
of why orthodox economics is such bullshit. Yeah. Why its models can can never actually predict the economy. And that is the things we were talking about on this episode are impossible to model because right. when you ask what fairness is, you know, the philosophers can talk all they want about notions of fairness, you know, Rawlsian versus whatever. But it really comes down to it's fair if I think it's fair. Yeah, that's right. Right. I, I it's only fair if I think it's fair. And your your feeling about fairness may be different from mine. Correct. And that's something we have to work out interrelationally between us. Yes. And when you have something that is so subjective, I mean, clearly there, there is science to this. There's human behavior that's built into us and influenced by culture. And there's certain things that are universal across all people in all societies. But it's not like physics. It's not like if something goes up, it must come down. Yeah. Uh, something else must come down, like in orthodox economics. There are no hard rules, and it's a moving standard. Yeah, that absolutely. That what we what we thought was fair uh, during the reign of absolute kings is not what we think is fair in a modern market based democracy. Yeah, that's right. And what we think is fair today will be different than what we think is fair in 25 or 40 years or whatever it is. And, you know, we have to evolve with the times and with expectations in society and so on and so forth. But I, I do think that, you know, particularly um, for progressives, a, a very important lesson is that just because inequality, high levels of inequality is bad, doesn't mean that, you know, making everything equal is good. It doesn't work like that. Right. From each according to their ability to each according to their needs is not an accurate representation no. of human psychology. No, it is not. It is not. It's all about addressing the dimensions of, of, of fairness that Eric laid out, you know, inclusion and process and outcomes too. But it's complicated and it will never not be complicated. And that's just something we're going to have to take into account in our economics. But, you know, like Eric says, if we can, you know, if we can understand and speak to the psychology, if we can really begin to repair the social contract in credible ways, we can begin to heal the divisions that have opened. And, you know, Bernie and Trump supporting relatives can finally talk to each other, which wouldn't be a right. bad thing. Well, wouldn't it be something, Nick, if uh, sometime in the near future, you know, we can we can talk about Republicans as uh, people we just disagree with over yes. policy, yeah. as a as opposed to people who are trying to totally undermine democracy yeah. and uh, tear yeah. the system apart. Ah, the good old days. Ah, the good old days. So, gang, in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we'll be talking to Professor Scott Galloway about his new book. Adrift. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.